This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Kirsty Melville here, and welcome to the History Listen. Earlier this year, we saw one of the most alarming state of the environment reports ever released in Australia. There are now more foreign plant species in this country than there are native ones. And the number of threatened animals has risen 8% since 2016, with more extinctions expected. So how did we get here? Well, the story involves zoos, national parks, a con artist, and the Acclimatisation Society, a group of well-intentioned Victorian gents who wanted nature's bounty to thrive in Australia, and it did, too much. Over the next two episodes of the History Listen, we join Bunurong writer and language researcher Sonia Marie to guide us through this ever-complicated, ever-shifting country. My name is Sonia Marie. I am a Kulin woman. My mother is Bunurong and my father is Scottish. I was brought up on King Island in the Bass Strait and I've spent a lifetime trying to reconnect with my mother's culture through language and by closely observing plants, animals and the seasons. Spring. My favourite season is called Parip. Parip? Spring. It is the season of the nesting birds. Watch out for Barrowan protecting its young. Barrowan? Magpie. As Garong slowly begin to bloom, dropping their flowers into the running water. Garong? Black wattle. This lets the Bunurong, who are down in the lowlands, know that Kunwara, eggs are ready to collect. Kunwara. Swan. It is the return time of the eok. Eel. Which brings much celebration and yang yang. Yang yang. Dance. Song. Parip is the time when day and night are equal and colour returns to the land. But where is this knowledge now? What happened to it when white settlers arrived? This is that story. When the settlers arrived in Australia, it was so much bigger than England. Nothing was familiar about it. It had such a variety of landscapes, they didn't understand it. None of the colonists who came here had any experience of or knowledge of Indigenous culture. Indeed, the Aboriginal people that they encountered, they saw as being effectively uncivilised. I mean, what is nature? I mean, the concept of nature doesn't make any sense if you're thinking about it from an Aboriginal perspective, because Everything in the landscape has a name, has a relationship, has a kinship. It's connected. It's, it is your family. So the stories associated with them, it's all culture. So the idea that somehow nature sits separate from culture, it's a very white concept. In Nam, Melbourne, Back in 1857, this idea that Lynette Russell is talking about was really popular. So much so, a group of men formed a society called the Acclimatisation Society, and its job, the remodelling of nature. 
In going about so serious a task as that of remodeling the arrangements of nature herself, we ought, I think, to assert our right to destroy some things for the purpose of smoothing the path of more valuable things. I'm Karen and I work at Melbourne Zoo. I've been here for 22 years and I just have a pretty passionate interest in the history of the zoo. Acclimatisation. The Acclimatisation Society came about mainly at the initiation of educated, enthusiastic, passionate men of society. They wanted to be part of the new Victorian era of natural history. We had a great movement of people around the globe in the 1850s, so it was easier for people to get around, but it was also easier for animals and plants to get around. The Acclimatisation Society's first president was also its founder. Edward Wilson was a very, very enthusiastic person. He attended the London meeting of the first Acclimatisation Society over there in 1860 and he came back all enthusiastic to Australia. And he, along with Ferdinand von Mueller of the Botanic Gardens fame, decided to create an acclimatisation society in Victoria. If it lives, we want it. That was the society's motto because... At present, it seems as if the world were only partially furnished. Partially furnished? Have they thought about what my ancestors know? Particularly the Victorian Acclimatisation Society, which is probably one of the earliest, or certainly the earliest in Australia, it's one of the early ones in the world. Most Aboriginal people in Victoria were removed onto missions and those that were not living on missions were probably quite invisible to the European settlers. So they didn't include Indigenous knowledges into any of the, their decisions. I am Lynette Russell. I am a Laureate Professor in the Arts Faculty at Monash University in the Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. Lynette Russell is a descendant of the Wadjabullock people of Western Victoria and she keeps this quote by Edward Wilson on her phone. This country has been shamelessly stolen from the Blacks. In less than 20 years, we have nearly swept them off the face of the earth. We have shot them down like dogs and consigned whole tribes to the agonies of an excruciating death. We have made them drunkards and infected them with disease which has rotted the bones of their adults and made few children as exist amongst them a sorrow and a torture from their very instant of birth. We have made them outcasts in their own land and are rapidly consigning them to entire annihilation. This was 1856 and Lynette says it helps to remind her of the power of globalisation. Edward Wilson was not only the head of Victoria's Acclimatisation Society, he was also editor of the Argus newspaper, which is where these words were published. Lynette keeps this as a reminder that the early Europeans knew what they were doing and the global trade was more important than local knowledge. We sent things to London and Paris, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and they were pigeons, kangaroo rats. We had wombats, kangaroos, black swans, which was a, a novelty. Opossums, as they were called in those days. <laughs> Quite a few different, different birds 
magpies, laughing jackasses as they were called. We would call them kookaburras today. And in return for these novelties, the bush was restocked with productive animals, settlers thought. Let's acclimatise this country, basically for profit, stocking the rivers and the, the, the countryside with useful animals. So we had alpacas, we had angora goats, we had different types of sheep. The fleece of which were sent back to England, spun up and woven up and then sent back as a piece of cloth. Grouse, quails, pheasants, anything that could be eaten or released for, for game. But also, there would have been that homesickness. They started by introducing um, songbirds, particularly things like blackbirds and thrushes. Uh, and my garden is filled with blackbirds and thrushes. A lot of the colonists lamented the fact that they didn't have those beautiful bird songs of, of home. In the year 1858, I sent out to Melbourne, under the care of a kind and attentive friend, a consignment of the common song thrush of England. They were turned out in the neighbourhood of Melbourne, soon bred and freely scattered over a considerable area. And when I was last in the colony, I noticed them in the gardens around Melbourne, fluttering around the bushes and singing as cheerfully as in their native land. Since that day, the song of the thrush has been productive of a degree of pleasure to my ears very difficult to describe. One must admire the wonderful richness and beauty of its note. They also introduced uh, European carp to the Murray River and introduced deer into some of the mountains. You know, animals that we probably would prefer they didn't, including starlings and sparrows and uh, Indian minor birds, many of which are now in plague proportion. They were fairly successful in varying degrees for about 10 or 11 years. The society didn't want to just willy-nilly bring out things without any care. They always cared, mainly for a fiscal reason, but it, it was care nevertheless. When animals arrived, at the Acclimatisation Society. They were housed at the Royal Park and that was sort of like a large farm and it was a bit like a quarantine station at the same time. I mean, think about animals coming in. After a voyage, they're a bit wobbly. They had the shelter and stables and paddocks and water and everything here and they were actually nursed back to health and ready to be distributed amongst the members of the society that were throughout Victoria. Introduced animals were initially liberated at Royal Botanic Gardens, and slowly this trend spiralled outwards. So the 1863 annual report lists animals liberated at the Royal Botanic Gardens. 18 canaries, 15 blackbirds, 24 thrushes. There were java sparrows, turtle doves, English robins, California quail, and English wild ducks. They also liberated different species at uh, Churchill Island, Yarra Bend, Wilson's Promontory. The good we do will live after us and so become a lasting benefit to the minions 
who will in the fullness of time inhabit this land. Eventually introduced species even reach the most southern points of the Australian mainland, Wilson's Prom, which I call Yurikawa Moon. My name's Lyndon Coston and I'm the team leader of the education team at Wilson's Promontory National Park. And we're at Stockyard Camp, which is next to the old uh, Yanaki Station Homestead Cemetery. And the cemetery is a really interesting site, which gives you an insight into just how remote this landscape was for the Europeans who first occupied this area. This country, prom country, Yirakwa Moon, is my country. It's traditionally a meeting place of the Bunurong and the Gunai Kurnai. It's where God sleeps and tells us his stories. By the time the National Park became a, a national park, there was already a lot of activity here. So there was the pastoralists um, who uh, had a number of runs throughout the park, including this a large run here from Yanaki down to Derby River, and also the prior history of the sealing and whaling. There were timber getters. Uh, there were also tin mining activities and fishing activities as well. So there was a lot that was already changing the landscape before this became a national park. Now it's plenty sun, Velato Nyoint, Velato Nyoint, plenty sun. It is early summer. It is when Bunurong people welcome their neighbours to the coast. Tuyang, people swim and gather Tuyang, shellfish, and Pitarong, periwinkle, from the rocky platforms, or fish for snapper at the mouth of the mangrove inlets. Mixing the day's catch with the fruit of the kakala, kakala, pig face, and sweet tubers at the bagaruk gather, bagaruk woman. Coolinth sit together making bark canoes. Coolinth. Men. So they can travel to the islands to catch corman. Seal. The moon bird have arrived and soon they will lay their single egg. The Kulin people gather together their camps Willem. getting ready for the coming of age ceremonies. Camp. Many yang yangs and winth burn yang brightly yang. across the landscape. Dance. Winth. Fires. It is an abundant time for the Kulin people. But the settlers are struggling to furnish this country. Acclimatisation isn't working so well and nature tourism is starting to boom. It's 1884 and three members of the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria set out on a long hike. It's how the story of the park begins. I'm Gary Presland. I'm the librarian for the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria, which makes me also their archivist. Gary Presland and prom ranger Lyndon Coston both think the story of that first hike to the lighthouse is important. Arthur Henry Shakespeare Lucas and his pals have new eyes for this place and they want others to see it that way too. Arthur Henry Shakespeare Lucas was one of three men who undertook a field trip from Trafalgar to the light station at Wilson's Promontory in 1884. And they were so impressed with the area, I don't know how long they spent there, but long enough to get a, a sense that it was a really uh, fabulous place in terms of the range of natural features that it had and as a place for 
tourists to visit and, and relax. And they published um, in the Field Naturalist Club's journal, they published a three-part account of that adventure. Lucas was collecting samples for Baron Ferdinand von Mueller, um, plant samples on the adventure. And so he makes a beautiful statement of, of um, uh, evocative statement of how he feels about the promontory and how he prophecies as the Cornish Peninsula was later to be discovered by tourists, not many generations will pass. Not many generations will pass. Before means of communication will enable Victorians to find out and do justice to this noble granite promontory, the Cornwall of Victoria. This is before the idea of the National Park has emerged. The Field Naturalist Club has just been established uh, three years beforehand, but they're out exploring and they're starting to get a sense of the value of this landscape. And so after they came back in the following year, 1885, they presented, uh, gave talks to uh, meetings of the Field Naturalist Club. And it was, um, the idea came up that uh, some effort should be made towards making that area, a, a reserving that area as it was, once again, I think, preservation of that area so that tourists and others could similarly enjoy it. And then I jump forward to 1887 and we have this bizarre event occurs where um, Annie Gordon Bailey has arrived in Melbourne and is pretending to be a member of elite society and she is whining and dining her way without paying a bill anywhere in Melbourne and she's come to Melbourne with her three daughters. Uh, they sing beautifully. They put on concerts for the elite of Melbourne and she's come to Melbourne with a proposal. There was a proposal to uh, relocate a group of crofters from the Isle of Skye to give the crofters uh, 45,000 acres of, of land um, which they could then farm on Wilson's promontory. And apparently it was a, a complete fraud. It was a scam, as we'd say in these days. She wants to bring crofters from the Isle of Skye in Scotland uh, to Wilson's Promontory and she wants to establish uh, farming plots for them and also where they can fish and set up a canning industry. And she says that she finds Wilson's Promontory uninhabited. For 20, 30, 40 years, the land has been Wilson's going begging. Wilson's Promontory, no would have uninhabited no for 20, 30, 40 years. And what I am asking of the department is... The land has been land going begging. No one would have it. No one thought of it until I made my application. And what I am asking of the department is that they throw the land open for selection. I want the whole of the promontory. The scheme would make the place the Brighton of Victoria. It is most lovely, the scenery wonderfully grand and fine. And she's promising that the, the crofters will give uh, fish here in such abundance that you will be astonished. The people of Victoria do not eat fish. I really can't understand why. The people of Victoria don't eat fish. I really can't understand why. And they will also establish a canning industry. Which is a new process that has been developed by the Danish um, the men will the take men up the will land. Take up will the land. The they will be a benefit to the community in many ways. And I'm sure that everyone will be pleased they are in Victoria.
So this is her proposal that she's putting to including the Governor of Victoria and to members of Cabinet and the Minister for Lands, and they think it's a fine idea. There's a lot of empathy for the Scottish uh, crofters because uh, there's um, they are being pushed off their land on the Isle of Skye um, and there's a lot of um, mem- Scottish people in the elite um, and the leadership of Victoria of the day, so there's a lot of support for that. But this raised the um, interest of the the Field Nats Club and in uh, February 1888 they made a deputation to relevant minister and that that include that deputation included the Royal Society and the Royal Geographical Society and the Academy of Arts so they were working in a consortium of vested interests At this point, the fate of the prom hangs in the balance. Annie wants the land in her own name, so that, she tells the authorities, she can speak definitively for her people. The newspapers love the idea. The lands department gives it careful consideration. We do not know what the crofters think, but the field naturalists fight back. It was an age when these societies, the field naturalists, the acclimatisation society, the museum and the Royal Melbourne Zoo all saw the future as up for grabs. So we'll leave Annie Bailey here for the moment because she's about to flee and we'll pick up what's happening in parallel with those men of the Acclimatisation Society. The Acclimatisation Society and Zoological Society amalgamated in 1861. They had a decline in membership. They were starting to become short of funds and I think they decided that they would be better off becoming the zoological and acclimatisation society, which then became, eventually, Melbourne Zoo. I'm Dr Jenny Gray. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Zoos Victoria. They really were a failed experiment They thought that they would be able to have animals being the same all over the world. And what we now know is that animals need pretty specific environments to thrive in. And some animals are incredibly adaptable and they become what we call invasive pests. A lot of animals that were introduced just died out because the wild here was just as inhospitable to them as you could imagine. Are invasive pests a problem? Absolutely. In Australia, we have a track record of invasive pest species that need management on an ongoing basis. But don't forget, there's rats as well, there's cats, there's domestic animals that we've brought in that equally have a big impact on the environment. So are we still living with the legacy of the early settlers? Absolutely. Whether it's the climatization society, the pasturists, the way we've cleared our native habitat, We've created agricultural wealth, but on the back of actual environmental deserts. A lot of damage was done, and not just with the introduced species. Take my story. 100 years earlier, my people, the Bunurong, had already been reduced to about 80 or 90 on country. Only four women survived. 
three of those four women were taken to the islands in the Bass Strait. One of them is my ancestor. The threads of my people are that fragile, and the Victorians knew it. By 1888, to celebrate a centenary of white settlement in Australia, an Indigenous family was put on display near the entrance to the zoo. I don't know if you're aware, but Melbourne Zoo in its early days actually had an Aboriginal family out the front who were part of the exhibit. I can assure you from an Indigenous perspective, that is a very unusual and rather offensive thing to imagine. Lynette Russell says it was described as an exact representation of a native home, but there were European clothing beneath the family's so-called traditional costume, and they clocked off at the end of each day. I'm so glad that this is no longer acceptable. Even the zoo, which prided itself on exotic animals, finally started to realise what was here. Before, before them, before they arrived. But could they raise enough interest to support their new research interest? To test the water, they put out a call. Financial support is needed for the Zoological and Acclimatisation Society to extend the scope of their researches concerning Indigenous animals and birds and now, birds threatened, with now threatened with extinction and perhaps solve, the, and problem perhaps solve the problem of their preservation. So that was in 1935. There was a realisation, and there had been for a number of years, that there was a value to the native flora and fauna, that several species had already gone extinct or were on the brink of extinction, and that they wanted to, being a scientific-based organisation still, they wanted to research and make sure that that didn't happen. In 1937, the board was dissolved, that society was dissolved, and it was recreated as the Zoological Board of Victoria. So they moved further away from the caged animal approach. Almost in every decade you see a new wave of thinking. You see in the 70s, as we started to be aware of some of the challenges happening on the planet, zoos and aquariums started to say, wait, hold on, we have skill sets that we can start thinking about conservation. We can start telling stories of critically endangered animals. We can start talking about critically endangered habitats. And so there was another wave of massive change that we then saw accelerate through the last two or three decades as we've come to understand more about climate change. I think certainly in the 20th century, people start to think in terms of ecological systems rather than just individual species or individual plants or individual, you know, um, rocks. They start to think much more holistically and start to imagine that everything is connected. Barrowhorn. Magpie. Kunwara. Swan. Eok. Eel. Wind. Fires. Yang Yang. Dance. 19th century faunal studies, it was a case of, oh, there's something very interesting, can somebody shoot it? That's how it operated. That's how our museums are filled with all the things that they're filled with, because those animals were sacrificed. It's a 
sobering and rather grisly history. So a walk in a national park, a trip to the zoo, is it recreation, conservation, tourism, or is it all of the above? And could Mrs Gordon Bailey have made the prom a home for those Scottish crofters from the island of Skye? Well, you'll have to tune in to the next edition of Imposters here on the History Listen to find out what happened to her and how she helped change our thinking. I'm Kirsty Melville. Catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.